Welcome to Car Talk with Matty J. This is the first of our interview specials, where I interview people in car media and the car industry to find out more about the industry and how to get in and to get a better understanding of what they do. I interview in this episode Paul Marrick, who's the senior road tester and automotive journalist for caradvice.com.au, to ask those questions as well as find some interesting stories from his time as an automotive journalist. So sit back and enjoy, because it goes, we go for an hour straight, there's, there's no breaks in this particular episode. We also discuss some this or that at the start of uh, at the start of this podcast. So we join the action right after the FPV and HSV debate, which is always a good one. Enjoy the podcast. Thanks. Yeah, the FPV, big fan of the cars, and and certainly right up until the end, I remember driving a, a GTF, and that was that was sensational. That thing had so much torque, like it was great, and the noise. It had incredible supercharger whine. It was just really good. Um, HSV. It wasn't until they did this last GTSR that they really got the right exhaust note and, and made it all happen. Because with the when the GTS first came out with the LSA, it was just you have to stand on it. You'd be doing stupid speeds before it make noise. Whereas yeah. then they they use some of the Holden Engineering staff's um, bimodal exhaust calibrations, uh, a device called the Bailey Tip, which was developed yeah. by Holden, um, and and the engine is just great. But favourite car of all time so far has been the um, the W1. That yeah. that has just been phenomenal. That LS9 combo with uh, the Trefeo R tyres was just like a masterpiece. And that thing was so fast that. You know, it's just wrong that a car that big can go can so fast. That, yeah. Like it, it was, it was sensational. I'm very jealous of anyone that ended up with a W1. I mean, yeah, yeah, they're pushing over 200k now. That's um, right. Yeah, yeah. they've got they've proper worked over. You know, Shockworks. Um, yeah. Uh, shocks. Yeah. <laughs> um, just yeah, I, I even like love them. So yeah, and you're a Ford man, I'm I suspect. A bit of a Ford guy. Yep. Um, but don't worry, I'd love a Malou. Yep. Because I reckon they're just just yep. stupidly awesome. fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, but nah. I, I yeah, the, the, Malou, the Malou is a sensational thing. Um, the thing for me uh, with uh, with Ford, Ford just didn't have the money to, to keep that whole operation going. And yeah. we ended up, um, I was fortunate enough to join the, the Ford guys at the Falcon Sprint launch, so driving the uh, 6 and the 8. Yeah, yeah. Got a chance to interview the guys, and nice. they were all so passionate. And they made the most of the... How the budget they had? Short millions they had. Yeah. They developed a, a tire with Pirelli for the car. Um, the the Sprint Six was bloody ridiculously good. Um, just I was just amazed at how quick those cars were. Uh, the, the brake package, everything was great about them. Um, and I, I wasn't entirely convinced that HSV would do um, the LS9 and the W1 because the, the cost of engineering a new engine when you have six months worth of sales left is stupid. Yeah. But they did it, so yeah. you know, kudos to them. Yeah, no, it's um, it's a special car, the W1. Uh, yeah. I think I was reading, I can't remember who, was Motor or another magazine, I ran a lap, uh, I can't remember which track it was, it was quicker than in some GDR, yeah. which is just un- yeah. unbelievable for a four-door sedan. You know? Yeah, you know, it all came down to gearing as well. We had the chance to test it at Haunted Hills, which is a hill climb track in Maui, and um, what I found there was I didn't even have to... You could make it around that whole track without leaving first. Like, right. the, the gear would run out to 96 kilometres an hour. Um, so you could use second, um, but then you'd have to sort of crunch it back into first in a few corners. But it was phenomenal. It was just like a go-kart. It had just endless amounts of traction. And when you switched it all off, it was quite progressive. And the engine just had so much torque that you could just 
drive like an idiot and it was still really good excellent car <laughs> um, apparently like from what I've heard the chassis balance and that was just they got it right and yeah. everything about it was, was spot on yeah it was firm I mean we um, we published a video at Car Advice where um, we drag raced the W1 against a BMW M3 competition uh, an AMG 63S and an Alfa Romeo Giulia QV um, and it, it basically just bit all of them yeah. so that car is is a testament to Australian engineering I reckon and it's a manual too so yep exactly <laughs> <laughs> makes it more fun uh, WRX or Evo um, I mean it depends like like okay we'll, we're talking the latest STI versus the previous gen like Mitsubishi fine, like well, definitely the the Subaru because the Evo 10 I think was the softest car they've ever made okay and yeah it, uh, sorry Evo I don't know the, the most enjoyable Evo that, that I drove was the 9. Yeah. Uh, that was amazing. And I continue to be impressed with the Subaru. The, the issue with the Subaru, though, is that it's the, the time has moved on. We did a comparison with Golf R and the Subaru uh, STI Spec R, I think it was. Was it R Spec, whatever they call it? Yeah. Um, and the Subaru just, it's just so far behind the times. Even doing um, 0 to 100 runs, you had to genuinely abuse the car to get what you needed. Didn't feel right. Uh, on gravel, the Golf R was great. The Subaru just sort of it didn't feel as composed. But then I think Mitsubishi just screwed it all up by putting in the dual clutch for yeah. for the Evo, and it just sort of it just lost its appeal. Yeah. But the Nine was like the last sort of proper fun Evo to drive. Yeah. Uh the fastest car I've been in was an Evo 9. Yeah, uh, right. A modified one. Yeah. Let's get the shit out of here. Yeah, like it was fast as hell. The engines are tiny, and then they, it was a 2.4 litre. I think the Evo 9 got the six speed manual, and it's just like, this thing is bulletproof. You just cannot kill the bloody thing. Like, it is just yeah. amazing. It, they're strong engine. Um, yeah. I think really, like, okay, the, the clutches are a bit, they're a bit funny to drive. Yeah. Um, but once you get used to them, they're obviously yeah. quite easy. But my mates on just blew me away. Yeah. In in any any weather, pissing yeah. down rain, still just stick like glue. And yeah. it was like, oh. Yeah, the traction is, is ridiculous. And then having the, um, oh, this is testing my memory, what did they call it? Was it the super active your control? Active your control, yeah. Yeah, like that thing is, is amazing in terms of what you can do to customise it. Yeah. Um, the one in the Subaru, which I find funny, I the, the thing I don't understand is how people don't, bother doing research on how their system works. So I've seen a number of publications where they think that the plus and the minus is for for which direction drive is sent, whether it's the front or the rear axle, yeah. but it has to do with how how much the differential is locking. So it depends okay. on how much you want, want it locked or whether you want it automatic. And people play with that control thinking that it will it will you know make a difference with regards to how much torque it sends where. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is a little bit funny. So the, the Subaru thing is quite technical, yep. um, whereas the Mitsubishi one was fairly straightforward. You just set what you wanted and away you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is a bit of a tricky one. Focus RS, CV Type R or Golf R? Mm. So we've, we've actually just done a comparison. Unfortunately, I wasn't part of that, but and I haven't driven the Type R yet, but I know that, uh, I don't know, the Focus RS I just find incredibly fun to drive. Like it is so different to what I thought it would be. I've driven the previous gen, the front wheel drive, and was amazed with um, how much communication you get through the chassis, but also the fact that it doesn't feel like a front wheel drive. You can turn it in, nail it, and you don't get, yeah, it, you don't get any um, torque steer. Like they, they really, they had a system called- uh, Reaver Knuckle. Yeah, Reaver Knuckle, that's it. And it was amazing. And this new one, it was a hard job to build on that. They built on it and then included things like, um, you know, the drift mode and 
you can get it with a drift stick like it yeah. is. The car is just sensational fun. Um, yeah. it's, it's unfortunately not quite a daily driver, um, which then leads me to the Golf R, <laughs> and the Golf R is just stupid. Like we've clocked a 4.6 seconds, zero to 100 in that with launch control, and it's so fast. You can drive it just normally, now it's got the infotainment, the tech, the everything. So the Golf R, I, I don't know, it's, it'll be a hard choice between Focus RS and Golf R. Once I drive the Type R, I'll see sort of um, how that places, but I've heard good things about that too. Yeah. One of my brother's good mates has got a, a modified Golf R. Yes. Stupid. Yeah, it doesn't take Stupid. much to modify them. You no. just tune and bang, away you go. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're really cool. And I think they look great as well. They're, they're sort of not over the top and not underdone. They're just yeah, right. They're just right, yeah. yeah. Focus RS has a fairly aggressive look to it, so... Civic Type R's overboard, I reckon? Yeah, oh, way overboard. And with the other issue with the Focus RS is the turning circle is horrendous. You cannot turn. <laughs> it's just insane. Yeah. You know, the Golf R's like a no-compromise car. Yeah. <laughs> it's a car you can do every day. Yeah, exactly. M3 or C63? Uh, so previously I would have said C63 because I love the noise. I just feel like it's an absolute weapon. But we're just about to publish a video where we did a launch control demonstration in, in the M3 and sort of answered the question whether you need launch control to achieve manufacturer times. As part of that, the thing that I genuinely disliked about the M3 was that every time you drive it, you're always hitting a, a limiter within the um, stability control. So it's always snapping and, and being aggressive. Yeah. And it really started to make sense to me when we had the chance to take it to what was effectively a skid pan and switch everything off. And then that car is so progressive and sharp that it's really made to be driven not by just an amateur. You know, if you're an actual race driver and a confident driving with everything off on a track, you can get the most out of that car and it will blitz a C63. Wow. Whereas the C63 is built for the person who wants a daily driver that they can show off in and look tough, whereas the M3, it's it's a very different beast. It sounds, I think, incredible, but it's just it's just a little too sharp for the road. Yeah. But obviously, you put it in the right hands, it's fine. So you know, it's it's striking that balance, and I think the M3 for the genuine enthusiast is the car to go, whereas the C63 is the one if you want to make noise and be known that you're driving an AMG. AMG, yeah. Yeah, but, but that brings me to the point that the C43 I don't think is a real AMG. Like those cars. They're just diluting the AMG brand, making the, them all-wheel drive. They don't have an. Sorry, they don't. They don't have the hand-built engine, do they? No. Yeah. So that moves them further away from the concept of AMG being an exclusive thing. Now you can just buy it, and it's just. I just don't think it's the same. Now, I've I've seen your review on Stinger vs. SSV Red Light, yep. so I won't, I won't go go there. Yeah. Uh, group B or Group A? Hmm. So I don't know, it's going back a, a while before my time, but I, um, I still I still watch and see the cars, and and they're 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 just. In, they were nuts, the people that to drive the drive yeah. Group B cars. So I don't know. I, I'm a fan of Group B, and I, I'm the same. Like, when I look at the way that these people used to drive, you look at some of the tracks and some of the environments that, that they were left to deal with. I, I don't know how, how a modern-day race driver would go being put into that position. I feel like you're, they were better drivers, um, you know, compared to today. And... Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's an interesting question. Um, yeah, there's. I, I think that racing has changed so much since since the days of um, older cars, and when especially when older cars were having to be driven at the limits, and it was genuinely dangerous. Now they're going faster, but I feel that with risk you get the reward, and also nowadays that if you're if you're driving as fast as you are, you look at something like your your Fiat Supercar series. There's so much protection within that vehicle that unless like that incident that happened. I can't remember when it was, end of Conrad Strait, when they had the, the, the guy die. Yeah. 
you know, you really, they, they're quite safe. Um, whereas if you go back to the days of, of traditional AV racing, it was just very much a case of the better driver is, is the winner here. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's, that's, that's a good answer. Mountain Pass or Straight Line? Um, oh, that's a good question. For me, a mountain pass is great if I know that I'm not going to encounter a cyclist yep. or a motorbike coming the other way. If I can have the whole road to myself, a mountain pass, straight line, I know that it's, it's me in charge and I know what's happening, but mountain pass is the ultimate way to, to have a bad crash if someone's doing something bad. Yep. So you can be on your best behaviour, but um, you know, things can go wrong. Uh, if I am going out for a drive, it will generally be um, like early in the morning, it will be when I know there's no one else around, I have to be respectable to cyclists because a lot of people um, get irritated with cyclists, um, but they have to understand that when you are on a bicycle that it can be scary having a car fly up behind you, but equally if you're cycling on a mountain pass that has a 100k an hour speed limit, it's just a dangerous place to be. Yeah. Um, I've had experiences before where motorcycles have been coming around a corner, I've had like someone's head in my lane right. as they're sort of, they've got so much angle. And it's stuff like that that I just, it's not worth losing your life over a joyride. So um, yeah, for me it's a mountain pass, but it just depends on the Condition. conditions. And for straight line, I don't get much thrill out of using launch control and seeing how fast the car is. And you know, we do it for benchmarking, but for me, if I can have a manual gearbox and it's up to the driver to then achieve a quick time, I'm all for that. Yeah. Mm. Totally agree with that. I um okay, like the typhoon's not the most sharpest thing that yep. I drive, but um you know I'll get up like really really early, yep. head up to like the spur or something, yep. and go for a drive, and you know it's being manual, you can wander through the gears, and, yep, and it's, exactly it's it's the best feeling. All my yep. mates are like, oh, why don't you get more power out of it and go straight? I'm like, nah, it's just yep. putting it through a corner. It's if you, it's more visceral. You, you yeah. feel it. That's the so, thing I don't get. Like more power, yes, is more power, but if you can't use it, that's what's exactly the point? Right. Like more power really affects straight line and or if you're on a racetrack or something and if you're not, just drive a car that you're happy with. You yeah. know, there's no point. Yeah, I've, I've had that. Like My daily drive is a, an old laser. Yep. Um, but, you know, I can chuck it into corners and yep. whatever. Um, and everyone's like, oh, it's got no power. I'm like, yeah, but I have more fun than this because I'm yep. like on it all the time yep. running, running corners and, you know, they're like, oh, how can you say that over a typhoon? It's I think it's a whole mentality kind of shift. Yeah. So like, exactly. you have to like really appreciate yeah. things for what they are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So, uh, what about cars attracts you to them? Just in general. In general, yeah. Um, I don't know. For for me, uh, I've always had a fascination with new cars, and for me, I don't have to be driving something fast to to be enjoying it. I love innovation. I love seeing autonomy and and us advancing towards an autonomous future. It gives the chance for people who can't be bothered driving and out. Yeah. Because at the moment, they're on the roads making life hard for everyone. And I think that you need to give them a chance to go... Like, my wife doesn't like driving. She hates putting fuel in her car, all that sort of stuff. If she can just get behind the wheel of a car and not have to do anything, she'll be happy. It's one less person on the road holding everyone up. Um, I, like, I like that, uh, you know, we're moving to a day where, you know, cars can become faster due to electric. But I also still want to have the ability to drive the car. You know, I think we're, we're going to lament the day the manual gearbox is gone. We're seeing less and less of that now. You can see a lot of supercars, they've all dropped manuals. Um, really need to go lower in the range now, ironically, to find one with, with a manual. Um, yeah, so for me, it's just seeing how new cars evolve and looking at how they were and how they are today. You know, it's, it's, it's a job that I really enjoy. I don't know that I could settle for one car. You know, yeah, I enjoy being able to, to sample everything, you know. <laughs> yeah, 
Um, really. Yeah, I'm, I'm much in agreement to that because yep. you know uh, before I bought the Typhoon, I, I didn't, I wasn't going to buy one. Yeah, I'm, I'm a hot hatch guy. I, yep. I love, I love things that go around corners. Yep. And I was just like, you know what, screw it. Like, yep. I'll just give it, Why a, not? Give, give it a crack and just jump into it. So, yep. um, you know, and I'll, everyone's like, the engine's you know, really, really good. Yeah. Like, oh, we'll see. And, it's, you know, it's just having that, that point of everything's different. Yeah. And going out of your comfort zone and, yeah, and seeing, absolutely. seeing what's different. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yeah, completely agree. <laughs> As an engineer, yep. how did you end up in this profession? Um, so it's a bit of a bit of a long story, but what I did was um, so I was originally when I was a kid I was into IT, so I was into computers and cars, and I finished high school and, and started working at a school in in IT doing computer support type thing. Um, I did that for a year before I started at uni, and in uni I started doing a telecoms degree. I got really sick of that after six months, and I switched to a mechanical engineering degree with the ambition of perhaps joining a car company to do chassis engineering or something like that. Um, and it was around that, that time I started a, a website, a car website, maybe 12 years ago. Um, Dad used to work for Ford, so he would bring home cars every now and then, so I'd review them for the site. When I turned uh, 18, I started asking for cars from manufacturers. That all started sort of coming together. I got a freelance gig doing some stuff for a newspaper. Um, my website was growing sort of pretty fast and I got to the point where I couldn't really like justify still running it while working mm. and I couldn't, re I needed to then bring people on and that was when I um, met Elbors who started Car Advice. So Car Advice was about six months old at that point and um, yeah, we, um, we hit it off, I was doing stuff for him and then the discussion came up about selling my site to Car Advice, so Car Advice bought my site for a, a shareholding in Car Advice. Um, so I continued through uni doing mechanical engineering, it, took, it was about a five year degree in total. Um, by the end of that I had the choice of either joining Car Advice sort of full time or doing continuing with uh, my professional thing and I, I stupidly went to, to professional life. So I continued this whole time doing sort of freelance journalism. I worked as a, an engineer for three years full time. Um, Got sick of that and um, was offered a position at Car Advice about three years ago. So I've been here full time for three years. The engineering thing helps me uh, in the sense that most of my colleagues um, are journalists, yep. and it gives me a point of difference to have an engineering degree because when people talk about stuff on a car, um, I'll actually know what they're talking about as opposed to the journalist who's just writing it down. Um, I'll actually have an understanding. I'm able to talk to other engineers or car companies to get a better feel for, for how something works so I can explain it to someone else. So that's that's how it sort of helps me in this field and I think it's a great asset to have and my recommendation is for anyone looking to get into this type of thing to to you know offer a point of difference because you can't, I, I just don't understand why people think that all you need is a journalism degree. You've got to have an actual understanding. If you want to relate how a car works, a journalism degree doesn't give you that. It shows you how to write, but yeah. if you can write and string words together, well, you know, what else more do you need? Yeah. <laughs> cool. What are some of the challenges you face in your career as a journal? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I, I originally, when I first started, so the first ever car launch I went to, so a car launch, you know, is, is effectively where <coughs> a manufacturer will get Let's say it's this Honda Civic here, they'll get 10 different variants together and they'll invite all these journalists um, from wherever. You'll get to drive the car, interview people and, and off you go. So the first one that I went to, 
and this would have been about 11 years ago, the first car launch was for Volvo XC90. And I was the youngest person there. I would have been about 19, 19, 20 at the time. Youngest person there by at least 40 years. Everyone was ancient. And I felt quite uncomfortable because they're all old. I've got nothing to talk to them about. I don't really know how all this stuff works. Um, so I found that was a bit tricky because I sort of, I cared too much about what people thought. These days, if I go to a car launch, I mean, this, this is going to sound bad, but I just don't really care what the others are doing. And if the others are are off, you know, talking about MGs or something like that, because, you know, they're all people, I just don't really care that I'm not part of that conversation. I'll yep. just go do my own thing. Um, and the biggest challenge has been getting getting car companies to understand online. Online is a, is a new thing for them and, and still is in, in many ways and, and that's taken a long time to evolve. So we are getting to the stage now where they appreciate that um, but it's taken a while and I think that's been a big challenge just sort of making yourself an authority despite not having the age of some of your peers, I guess. What would you recommend uh, for people like me who are wanting to get into this industry? Obviously, you mentioned point of difference. Yep. And I, I'm, I've been, you know, I really agree with that point. What else besides like having a finding your that niche or finding that point of difference? Do you, do you reckon would, would make it be able to help you make it in this industry? You know what? A lot of people. Uh, we we get a lot of people emailing, and and I get a lot of people contacting me about getting into the industry, and everyone seems to think that. I'll come to work, or the rest of my colleagues will come to work, hop in some McLaren and go for a drive somewhere, come doesn't back, go home, and that's it. No, it doesn't work like that at all. Like, looking at this garage that's behind us now, we've got a Honda Civic, an M140, a Hilux, something else, and, you know, there's just some generic cars here. And that's life most of the time. You've got to be able to appreciate all new cars as opposed to just the fancy stuff that everyone likes talking about. Um, I can't stand people who are in this industry to showboat because no one cares. You're replaceable. Um, so thinking that you're better than you are is is one thing to not bother doing. Um, so you've got to have a love for a genuine love for cars. You've got to be willing to work from the ground up. Like the again, the amount of people that start off in the industry and again expect immediately to be out doing something fun. It's like it does not work that way. Um, so we've got some interns that have interned for what a year, joined, and it'll be two years before they even drive something half interesting. And the the reason behind that is that when a manufacturer gives us a car, they're giving us a car, and it's the responsibility of that car. So when they give us something, it's not like we can go and just burn tyres and, and do all this shit with it. You've got to respect the car and respect that you are driving someone else's property. And the second I see that, that someone isn't respecting that, I'll call that out and remind them of the fact that that's not your car. Um, in fact, most journalists, because of the, the amount they get paid, could not afford most cars, let alone the, the exotic stuff. So the advice would be get yourself a point of difference, be prepared to work hard, be prepared to start from the ground up, and I guess be prepared to be multi-platform. That's that's another thing that these days is, is huge. Like. You can't come into this industry wanting to just work for a magazine and you know just be happy with that. Nowadays, you've got to be able to present on video. You've got to be able to, to talk about a car confidently on radio. You've got to be able to write about it, photograph it. You've got to be able to communicate effectively with PR people, engineers, 
Um, the, the key is to not look like an idiot at any point because if you're entrusted as an authority on new cars, you need to look like you know what you're talking about. So, yeah, yeah. Bit of a long-winded answer, but yeah. No, that, I mean, confidence, um, you know, willing to, to put in the next yeah. mile. And, yeah, exactly. You know, and you've got to remember, most of the cars you guys test are for everyday people. That's it. I mean, best-selling car in Australia is the Hilux, yep. not the Lambo Aventador. So yeah. that's why that car takes precedent over any other for content. So, you know, that's as simple as it is. People want to read about that. Yep. You might get a small selection. And the thing is, the guy that buys an Aventador doesn't read car advice. Or well, he might, but he doesn't give a shit what I think about it. He'll just go buy it anyway. Yeah, so to, you have to understand that no one cares what you think. They look to you as an expert for an opinion, just like anyone else that researches a new product. But if you think that someone cares beyond what your opinion is, it's it's just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, and the example of that is like um, anyone who, who tries to be a try-hard top gear. These guys have worked up to the level that they're at with an engaged audience for quite some time. Anyone that tries to copy that is just is wasting their time and they look stupid. So it's a case about just being genuine and understanding that it's not about you, it's about the car. Yeah. With the internet the way it is now, we see so many automotive journalists taking interesting concepts to review cars. Matt Farrer from Swing and Tire is a good example with his with him, when he does one takes. I don't know if you've seen them. Yep. Um, now he's obviously not doing them much more any, anymore um, because other people have taken that idea and, and went with it. Um, what do you think is kind of like the next big concept for automotive journalists, journalists to, like, to, to delve into? Um, um, well, funny you should bring this up. The next big thing is influencers and YouTubers. So we've invited a guy over who's upstairs right now. Um, his name is Joe Achilles, and he's a bloke that um, has this cult following, and he reviews BMWs. And he started off doing just the occasional thing, now has big following on YouTube, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. And this guy... Um, is now at a level where he's being invited to, to events to, to look at stuff and, and he's looking to make this a career. Um, you look at Shmee, the dude in, in the UK. Um, so him and Joe are, are good friends and these guys are looking at, at the, the game of not so much becoming sort of um, in towards... Um, yeah, heading towards um, a, an age where anyone can review a car and what happens is that they almost have more authority than the experts because, um, like with Matt Farah, when you see him and you get to know him, you get to be comfortable with what he's saying, you trust him, and you're willing to sit through a one-take, which is generally not as well produced, goes for longer, blah, blah, blah. If we were to do that and you stumbled across us and didn't know us from a bar or so, had never seen any of our content, you'd click away because you're like, this is boring. Yeah. Um, whereas if it's someone that you know and engage with and you have a, a, a following, they're, they're comfortable with you experimenting and doing stuff. So I think that that is where we're heading now, where you've got these established companies like Car Advice that do reviews, but we're moving down the path of influencers having more of a say, more of an opinion, and car manufacturers value them a bit more because they're less likely to say bad things. And even if they do say bad things, it's not like it's a critical bad thing. It's just like it's a it's a bad thing that your friend says about something, but everything else he says has been good, so you sort of ignore it. So, yeah, I think that's that's where sort of things are heading at the moment. Um, you know, so it's I think it's it's a good thing. You know, why not? People need to. You know, um, there's even another one called. Um, Supercar Blondie. So she's a oh, yeah. yeah lady from Australia. Lives in Dubai. Husband probably 
has a lot of money or something. I don't know what she, she does outside of that. But after an article she had written on her, I think in the Daily Mail, her following has exploded and she's had lots of opportunities now. So it's that type of thing that, that helps. Obviously she's got a point of difference there, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, cool. So at Car Advice, uh, what is the process of review from start to finish? Um, is there planned shooting, story slash plan or is it just a time spontaneous uh, I know it's a bit of a long-winded question no, but right. um, you know w what would be a standard procedure yeah. I'm laughing here because there there's not often a rinse and repeat procedure yeah. now it's not because we're disorganized it's because every car is different um, so I'll give you an example of one that we had just recently so we did a comparison with uh, Honda Civic uh, this one's the VTIL Hyundai i30 SR Holden Astra RS and Mazda 3. Because with a comparison like that, if we do it on the road, there's limitations to what we can do. So if I want to test the handling of a car, I can't really do it on a public road. If I want to performance test them, I can't really do it on a public road. It's, it's, it's not because your performance testing is important for a car like this, it's because you want to benchmark it against the other four, other three cars. Yep. So for that one in particular, I'll walk you through the process for it. So we know that we're getting the cars, we know when the cars are coming in, we need to collect the cars, so there's someone involved in that. Um, this particular comparison that we did uh, that hasn't been published yet um, was four cars, we needed a video on it. So for that one in particular, I need a video person, I need a photographer, and because it's four cars, we need a second video person. So we then need to find a venue, so we now use the AARC, which is the Australian Automotive Research Centre, it's the proving ground in Anglesey owned by Lindsay Fox. And what I need to do is then justify my time out of the office for a day um, and what else we can do to make value out of it. So what we did was we booked the AARC for two days, two days for the guys to film the cars and for me to present and to evaluate the cars and do the testing I need to do. We then decided that on the second day we would also do some other content. So this was the, the Kia Stinger and the BMW M3 at the same place. Getting the cars there is obviously a problem because you have six cars, so we used a truck to transport three cars down there. Uh, one car was driven by Holden down to the to the place. Um, I knew that we'd be going through a set of tyres on the M3 and potentially the Stinger, so we bought new tyres for the Stinger, which are over there. We had the new tyres fitted to the car. I let BMW know that we'd be potentially going through a set of tyres in, in the M3. So for them, it's not so much, it's a problem. It's so that they know when the car comes back it needs to have new tyres, as opposed to the car comes back and, oh my God, it needs new tyres, <laughs> I don't have any. Um, so that's that process. When we're there, we're doing, uh, day one was the guys out getting B-roll shots. So that's basically where the video guys are out with the cars at this facility, getting shots of them passing. These are shots where you can't see the driver. So in the video, in video land, when you see the car passing, it's just a car passing, you don't focus on who the driver is, the driver is generally someone else. So I'll be there for the bits that need me to speak or to do other things. While the guys are getting B-roll, I'm getting performance data, so using a V-Box, um, that's a GPS device that measures performance. Um, for cars like this, I'll get zero to 100, 100 to zero. We'll do zero to 100 three times and I'll take the best time. 100 to zero, we'll do that three times and I'll take the best time. The reason we do that three times is you get brake fade, um, we had one incident with the Mercedes-Benz GLE Coupe where it um, started getting brake fade after the second brake attempt from 100 
and we published that. Mercedes-Benz cracked it because they thought it was an unrealistic test, but I disagreed. Um, had cross-drilled brakes, obviously, to help it with braking performance, and it didn't help. So we talked about that because the, the cars we tested it against at the time didn't do that after three stops. So it gives us a sign of how good the brakes are. Um, I'll do a quartering G test. So what we do with that, the, the V-Box again can measure Gs. We have um, a big sort of skid pan area at the AARC where there's like a 15 metre uh, radius circle with a white line. I'll drive the car around gradually increasing throttle to the point where it starts uh. understeering. We'll then, <laughs> that's right, we'll then measure um, the maximum G-force that we can get because what happens is once the car starts understeering, you're breaching the friction limit and then you're not actually adding any more Gs because the car's starting to, to push wider. So that test tells us which chassis is better suited with the car, which tyres are better, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'll do a decibel test there as well. So across that whole circuit, we'll run uh, like a, a decibel meter to see the maximum peak um, in the car. That'll tell us how noisy the cabin is. Do that at 80 and 100 kilometres now. And then the final test I'll do as well is a fuel economy run, um, which is several laps of the what they call the ADR circuit at the facility at 80 and 100 k's an hour, and that will give me a fuel measure. Um, we'll then generally get real-world fuel consumption as well, but because we share the car with so many people here at the office, it's a bit unrealistic to do that. So it's better to have a closed environment where I can just rinse and repeat. So that is a general idea of how we would do a comparison like that where we've got... Um, four cars involved. Obviously a performance car is a little different, you've got a track that will hire or something like that, but that's the general midst of a bigger test. Yeah. For a person like me who's trying to, uh, trying with his little car show um, and is beginning to write reviews, uh, I'm on social media, um, you know, really trying to, trying to push the, you know, my, my, kind of my show, but still can't seem to really, really break, break out. Um, what would I be able, like what could I do um, better or what do you would you recommend for me to get like be able to get noticed? Yep. Um, I mean, obviously the point of difference as previously mentioned. Yep. Um, but like even just you know in general, uh, yep. th things to look for when 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 conducting a test yep. or, or just general talk. So the the thing is that you've got. To, so I mentioned before getting the opportunity to interview other podcasters so that they can perhaps interview you or talk about your show. That obviously helps getting exposure. It's a plug. Unfortunately, the, the hardest thing is because everyone has a podcast, right? You've got to have a point of difference. And, and it's, it's one of the things that you can't just go out and find a point of difference. It has to be something that, that you come up with. Um, for podcasting, I know that it has to be regular. So it has to be published the same time every week or every month or whenever. Because if it's not, people lose interest. And if we're ever late, you need to make up for it. So it always has to be regular and consistent. You need to take feedback, so you need to ask for feedback, take feedback to know that people are listening and they care. You need to ask them to leave ratings so they can push up the quality of the show. Um, and exclusives. If you can offer something exclusive on the show that will force people to listen in, um, that's, you know, that helps. Um, and, and just interviews. I mean, interviews are another good thing. We, we do a lot of interviews with the Car Advice podcast, just with people that are interesting. Um, you know, take, for example, if you can get an interview with Lindsay Fox, for example. Just having a chat to him about his cars, people find that stuff interesting. So, and, and often the hardest thing is you may think your show is great or you, whatever you're doing is great, but and I've fallen into this trap many times where you don't get a third-party perspective and 
because your cloud, your your judgment is always clouded. So what I would do is get someone who's perhaps a little bit into cars but has never listened to the show to listen to it and give you feedback, because then you'll pick up things that you may not have noticed. Um, and, and I guess the final tip as well is to make sure the production quality is good. That's a hard thing to do, but if the production quality is good, people they will have no excuse to switch off, because it'll mean that they'll sit through the whole thing without sort of wanting to turn off. Yeah. Um, I've actually got in contact with uh, Marty Carmel. Well, they got yep. in contact with me because yep. I, I, I spoke about them on the on, about on show, and they're like, "Oh yeah, we'll listen to the show. You know, we'd love Fantastic. to come. We'd love to come on or we'll ha you know, have a chat." So that would be a very good idea because um, what you can do from there is once you get them on to have a chat, um, get them to tell their followers about it. So if they tweet or or in one of their videos, just say, "Oh, by the way, we had a chat on this podcast. Have a listen to what we had to say." That then gets their followers because they trust them to then come to you and have a listen. Um, and in that episode, that's the one you want to pump up, things like make sure you leave us a rating, blah, 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 because then you're going to get a new batch of listeners. Yep. You want to optimise as well. So you want to see what length of um, uh, show works. Um, is it too long? Is it too short? That's, that's how you do, you know, you get that through your feedback. So um, if each week you ask a different question of your listeners, to give you feedback on it, that will then help you understand your, your market better. Okay. Um, now, you've driven some incredible cars. What would be the most incredible car slash moment you've had while doing this job? Um, so, incredible car, um, probably, so I, I'll, I'll name two of them. Uh, one was I had the chance to drive a, a Veyron, and that was uh, when I was 19. I was the youngest person in the world at the time to have driven the car. And that was an incredible experience because I was pretty sure I wasn't going to be allowed to drive the car because I was 19. Uh, but when we did the factory tour, um, we went out for a drive just as a bigger group. You know, they had a chaperone with the car. Came back to the factory and um, <laughs> who was in the car? I think it was uh, Anthony Crawford uh, from Car Advice. He goes, mate, get in, it's your turn. And I thought, I'm not gonna ask any questions about forms Oh shit, I'm just gonna get in and do this. I got in and I was terrified because the guy that was in the car was the chaperone from Bugatti. He was he was an okay guy, but just not very friendly. Spoke in French to someone the entire time on the phone. Like he just, and when we got onto the freeway, I said to him, oh, do you mind if I give it a stab? And he goes, well, um, it's your license. So, and I'm like, of course I'm gonna do this. So I just went full <laughs> throttle, doing maybe 80 k's an hour at the time, hit the, hit the throttle and I remember the surge of talk, like it, the traction control light came on because it lost traction at 80 k's an hour. And then um, we propelled up to like 260, 270, it was hammering. And then I remember rolling out of the throttle and just like a minute later looking in my mirror, because I was in the overtaking lane and there was a police car there. And I thought, fuck, I'm screwed here. Just thinking to every time I've been on the road yeah. in Victoria. And I was getting prepared to sort of have to like, I don't know what was gonna happen. So I merged out of the way, and the cop car was a, a Fiat 500, or a Fiat Punto. He came up next to me, gave me a thumbs up, and drove off, and I'm like, <laughs> fucking hell, I dodged a bullet there. Um, so that was, that was amazing. And the other one was uh, getting the chance, uh, it was the Jaguar F-Type SVR launch, and the track that we were at was in Spain, it was Motorland Aragon, where they do, I think, MotoGP, and when they have the track configured with the back straight fully open, um, Jags called to phone with this car was that it'll do 300 k's an hour. 
So they set up the track for us to do 300. So I rolled onto the back full throttle and just having the, the surreal moment when you hit 300 to realise that you're doing this, getting paid for this, um, and that was great. And then it all become unstuck when I hit the fucking brakes as hard as I could. Um, the guy, because it was a second lap, the guy, the instructor said to me, just brake a little later this time. And these carbon ceramic brakes on these cars were shit ass. They just weren't stopping the car. And I was flat to the board. I said, mate, it is not stopping. Um, I was gearing down, trying to slow it down, and we overshot the, um, this sort of hairpin at, at the back of that. There was shit loads of room for runoff, but I remember thinking, this, this is not going to end well. So yeah. um, the brakes were cooked by that point. Um, but the poor quality, but I don't know what the story was, but those two were great. And just uh, an like a, a pinch yourself moment was um, when we went over to, uh, I think it was Portugal this time, for Jaguar XJ500, which is the new version of the XJ. I was sitting at the dinner table with, um, and sitting next to me was Ian Callum, the head of design at Jaguar, and he is the nicest guy you will ever meet. And just that surreal feeling of thinking, I'm sitting here next to a guy that's designed some of the most amazing looking cars in the world. Um, this just feels incredible. Um, and also part of the surrealness of it was that the, the guy from Top Gear was at our table as well. Um, what's his name? Rory Reid, one Rory, of the yeah. presenters, who was just <laughs> the biggest anticlimax in the world. Just didn't want to talk to anyone. I was like, well, don't care. Yeah, so he wasn't that good, but Ian, Ian was amazing. So, and Ian, just down to earth guy. Um, he told me a funny story where he he used to work for I think it was Walkinshaw, I think it was, and he designed the VT Club Sport, but he designed it on a plane on the way from the UK to Melbourne. <laughs> Presented it to the guys, hopped on the plane, and head went Coming back. back. So the VT Club Sport is his um, is his his baby. He used to live here in South Melbourne. All right. Um, yeah, just an amazing guy. Has time for everyone. Remembers your name, awesome. and it's like this is a guy that doesn't need to remember my name. So yeah, just just very cool moments in in life. <laughs> that one of those starstruck moments. You get. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Meaning a hero. <laughs> What's your take on the rise of the SUV, and do you think they offer a false sense of security? Because they're everywhere, and yeah. um, you know. To be honest, like being in some you know, lower yep. cars when trying to pass, you can't, you can't yep. see anything, and and like you, you know, I ask people who who own SUVs, and I'm like, why? They're like, oh, because it's just easy to put the kids in and, and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, yeah, I get that, but yep. you know, yeah, I don't know. I um, my wife drives a Mazda too, and she's a she does nannying for this family, and the family um, well off or whatever they've got a Range Rover Sport, and when she drives that. She says she loves the feeling of it. And I asked her, why? And she goes, oh, you sit higher, you see better, all this sort of stuff. But in actual fact, her Mazda 2 has better visibility than the Range Rover because it actually has windows, not just like the narrow School things. squares, yeah. yeah. So, I, 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 look, the, the rise of the SUV is a surprise for Australia because it's surprising that they um, have gone so well, but it's more surprising that people are conned by them. Like... Maybe not conned, but I, I think of cars like a CX-3. You can pay 30-something thousand dollars for a CX-3. It is literally a Mazda 2. Checked up. Yeah, it has a tiny... It's ineffective as an SUV. But people buy them, and I don't understand why. For me, I'm a wagon man. Audi RS6 is Hell my yeah. dream car. <laughs> yeah. Um, that seems to me the ultimate car, because you have a massive boot. Um, shit loads of room inside. It hammers. Why would I need an SUV? It's, it's heavier, and now the irony of, of it is that they're making like plug-in hybrid SUVs. It's like, this is stupid, it's too heavy to start with. Yep. I need all that stuff. 
Um, so look, I understand the practicality of them. Bigger, the bigger issue for me is people who drive something like a Prado around the city. Um, they think that they don't have another option, but in reality, you've got like Honda Odyssey, Care Carnival, big cars, it's seat, lots of kids, bigger boots than your SUVs when the seven seats are up. So I think it's, it's the lure of thinking that one day you'll need to go off-road somewhere, yeah. which 99% oh. of people don't. And I think that's the, um, yeah, I agree with that. I think that's the car companies trying to sell you a, a lifestyle. Yeah. That's all it is. Car, car companies are just brands. Yeah. They're just selling you the, the dream of what if I want to, you know. <laughs> yeah. I remember my dad back in 2006 put a brand new territory. Yep. He put a territory gear. And, um, you know, he's like, oh, you know, I wanted something decent, like not that she can yep. handle like a car, not yep. like, it was like a boat. And I, was, I tried to convince him not to. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's been a good guy, still got it. Yep. Um, but, you know, he, it's just like from that moment, it's just like it's, I could see, like, you know, it's like a mind shift change. Yeah. And, you know, people are like, oh, yeah, SUV is great. You know, you know, eco sports and stuff. They're, yeah. they're never going to go off road. Yeah. And I, so, yeah. yeah. I don't know. It seems once they started an SUV, they don't go back. Yeah. And it must be the lure of sitting high. That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> Very weird. <laughs> um, do you think that with your automotive manufacturing industry in Australia essentially dead, um, there is a chance for young designers to still get work at companies like Holden and Ford? Uh, I know Ford is still offering like like a, they offer a graduate program and yep. a few other things. Um, but in like in ten years' time, do you reckon it's still they're still going to keep it? Because I know from from my research that they Ford Australia is still doing for Australasia. Yep. Um, but theoretically speaking, with the industry here done. Do you reckon there's still that chance? No, I think there's. that's the misconception. Um, so Ford has hired an incredible amount of engineers, for example, yep. designers. Yu Yang's has never been busier than it is. They, they are like a, uh, you know, they are doing such a good job for what they are. Holden, um, I had the chance to um, uh, to have a chat with Richard Falazzo, who's the, um, the boss of Holden Design, essentially. Um, and that followed on with a chat that I had uh, with Mike Simcoe, who started off in Australia and is now the head of GM Design globally. Yeah. So Simcoe was responsible for cars like the Monaro. He was he was a champion of all these great things. So uh, they still employ people here. So at Port Melbourne, there's designers there, clay modelers there that are designing cars for the rest of the world. And you've got um, some of them, like the, I think it was the Buick uh, Av... I can't remember the name of it. It was designed entirely in Australia, and that thing looks stunning. Chev Bolt, Australian design. So, you know, it's it's still alive and well. Anyone that is an engineer or a designer that wants to, to still be in the industry, the Australian manufacturing scene is gone, but the Australian engineering and design scene is still kicking on very strongly. Um, and they'll happily take interns to give you experience, which can then be a stepping stone to overseas markets. Australians are very highly respected around the world for, for engineering and also design. So that's that's the thing I like the most about it. <laughs> yeah, no. In your eyes, what, what makes something like back on back on topic of, of articles? Because so, I, I added these in. Um, what makes an intriguing article to read? Or because um, I I know the yeah. it's a lot more video based and that's where everything's heading. But if you're looking at something to read and you say, okay, okay I want to have something technical or you know. that's a really good question. Because I, to me, uh, maybe it's because I don't come from a journalism background, but I, I don't. I don't try and tell some crafty story with movie references and all this sort of stuff. I prefer to just get down to the point and give the person what they want. Yeah. So as a result of that, some people may not enjoy reading my stuff because it's just 
clinical and, and down to the line. Um, so what I try and do is put it into perspective for a buyer. So um, let's say we're talking about, uh, uh, what's a good example, Jeep Compass just recently, I did the launch of that. Um, what you'll find is that some people who are creative writers will gloss over things that are important. So they might not understand how the all-wheel drive system works, so they'll just gloss over it. They might spit out some figures about the approach and departure angle or the ground clearance and not really explain what that means. So if you're a buyer of a Jeep Compass and I tell you that it has a 30-degree approach angle, you want to know what that means. Is that good or is that bad? So I, I like to explain what that means. Um, so for me, when I read an article, I want to know... I love just seeing the facts and the figures so that I know, you know, what is the heart of this car. I don't really care so much about this fancy story. I just I prefer to just get to the point. Um, but I understand, obviously, some people like reading something that takes them on a journey. If there's a story to tell, I'm happy to read it. So if it's a story about, um, you know, you're interviewing someone interesting and they, they tell you a bit about their life, that I love, but yeah, if it's if it's just someone's way of trying to, to make their story prettier, I just don't care. And it's the same with videos of car reviews. I just sometimes don't really give a crap what they're, you know, they, you know some people try and put on a performance. It's like, just tell me about the car, I don't care yeah. about you. Um, so for someone like Chris Harris, for example, I don't find him engaging, but I love the way he drives a car and extracts every last bit of performance out of it that to me is the ultimate car review because I see it being just, he's beating the shit out of these cars but driving them beautifully. So that's what I love seeing. I don't care when someone goes and does some lifestyle review of a something because it just doesn't interest me because I've not learnt a thing. I haven't seen the car being driven dynamically. I just don't care. So that's why I try with, especially with my reviews, I try and keep them to the target market. So if we're reviewing a uh, something fun. Um, I want the the review to be exactly what that is. So if it's the M140, for example, I'm not going to do a video review of that where we drive around the city all day. I want to have at least one shot of it doing a launch control, at least one shot of it doing something sporty so that you can get some value out of the review. And if you want to buy one, you know that you've learned something and I've helped you make your decision. Yeah. And I, I mean, if... I would say if, uh, if it's like a sports car or sports orientated, yeah. you want to see it doing sporty things. That's right. And we're limited in Australia because we unfortunately can't do a lot of these things. Public roads, nanny state big time. We, we get complaints from people if a car touches like a solid white line in a video. It's like, are you people serious? So unfortunately, that means we're restricted to what we can do. Tracks are very expensive to hire, so I can't just go hire a track for something because there's no return on investment. Um, while some people may enjoy watching it, the review, I, we, we can't justify the cost of that because it's, you know, if it was a Toyota Hilux that had a race package on it, fair enough, because I know that a lot of people buy them, you get value out of it, but if it's some bespoke car that no one really buys, there would have to be a good reason for us to sort of try and do something extended with it. So that, that's why I try and limit video stuff to things that you can actually display doing the thing that it's meant to be doing. Yep. Um, last question, uh, what do you actually personally drive? Um, being a journalist, has, has this made you more critical of the cars you've owned or, or drive? Do you, do you prefer to talk about what you drive or do you give recommendations upon what you've driven? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Unfortunately, I have, like this is sort of explaining my life story, but I, we live in an apartment. I have three parking spaces. One is for a press car that I'll take home. One is for my wife's car, she drives a Mazda 2. Um, 
and one is a spare if someone wants to come and stay with us. I don't have any room to put a car. Um, so I, I want to have my own car, but the problem is I can't just have one. I want to have like five or six. Um, so yeah, for me, if, if, if I could buy what I wanted, I would have an Audi RS6 um, because that represents the ultimate performance car. I think that is just amazing. Uh, it looks good, it sounds good, it does everything good. Um, I would have a Range Rover Sport SVR because that car is ticks the life's boxes. It sounds stupidly good um, and I just love everything about it. Um, in terms of an older car, I want to have a DeLorean uh, because I love Back to the Future in the series. I love that car and how special it is. Um, I've heard they're restarting production with some of the original parts, which is cool. In the States? Yeah. Um, I'd love to one day own an Australian car. If I could get my hands on a W1, I'd love to have that. Um, in terms of exotics, I'm a, a stupidly big fan of the um, SLS AMG Black Edition. I'd love to have one of those. Yeah. Um, oh, there's such a long bloody list of cars that I want to own, uh, and that's the problem. I, I would have to have unlimited money, and I don't know that in this job I could own one car and be happy with it. Um, yeah. I know it's not, not a good answer. No, but no, it's, it's a perfectly great answer. Yeah, and, and the thing I hate the most, actually, ironically, is motoring journalists that don't own cars. And for me, it's not because I just want to live a free life of free cars. It's because the cars I want, I can't afford. And, um, you know, one day. Yeah. <laughs> one day. Uh, I've, well, my partner cracks the shits at me all the time. She's like, you've got bloody three cars. <laughs> I've, got, I've got one in Clubridge. Yeah. It's an old W124 Mercedes. Yes, which I'm, nice. Which I'm fixing up yep. gradually. Um, I've got the Typhoon. Yeah. I've got the Laser. <laughs> She's like, you're paying all this shit, what for? I'm like, I'm like all right, one's on Clubridge. Yeah, so that's nothing. And I'm, I'm like, so, well, you know, next one's going to be an RS. She's like, you're not having an RS. And, <laughs> yeah, so. unfortunately, um, yeah, some people just don't understand. I'm not going to say women. Some people don't understand. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, I would prefer to have it that way. My wife doesn't like cars at all, so she doesn't care. I prefer to have that than a wife that loves cars, and then we both end up spending all of our money on shit we don't need. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know, it's, it's hard. We all have things we'd love to have, but can't afford to have. So I just make do with getting access to all these different cars and sort of making that happen. So, uh, it's like, I mean, you have to pay for insurance. Yeah, I mean, it's that's the thing. It's not like um, I don't know. It's not like I, I do it just for that. Um, that's that's just a, a benefit of the job. Um, yeah, I'd love to be able to have a car that I love and cherish and, and work on. Um, it's just. Yeah, it'd end up being a money pit. We're finding that out the hard way. <laughs> uh, no, it, it's it's good to have a hobby, and you know, I'm finding with with my old, old Merc, it's um, it's it, it's good when it works. Yeah, but yeah, when it doesn't, it's it's savage, savage. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's part of the fun. Oh yeah, I, I love gotta it. make the most of it. Yeah, so. Gives me stuff to talk about on my show. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, just to talk shit for an hour on a Tuesday night. <laughs> oh, that's good. So how often are you recording it? Every week. Every week? Yeah. And you've been consistent with all your recording? Yep, every yeah, week. Right. Uploaded usually on the Friday of, of that yep. week. Um, yep. And like I obviously record on the Tuesday night because yep. I do it live on the, on the show. Yep. Um, and then because I use, I use all the facilities in the studio in yep. there, you know, Excellent. I get good good quality out of it. Yep. So being a teacher, I. I Gives me enough time to cut it up, cut yeah, it back, and that's put, good. put my intro music. And yep. 
stick it on the web. Yep, that's good. And do you have a website running? I don't have a website running. That's probably going to be my thing. I've got a Facebook page. Got, I'm, I'm converting my Instagram to, yep. to that. Um, well, I have converted it to that. Um, but I, I, that's the next step to get to get my website yep. running. And I want to start doing some reviews. And yep. Yeah. Um, cool. I really want to get as I really want to get out there and, and just contact you know, Carmi page. Just yep. say, look, I'm, I'm, into, I'm yeah, I'm interested. Yeah, yeah cool. So cool. that's 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 my that's my next step. Yeah. I just want to say a big thanks to Paul Merrick for the interview and for showing me where he works and giving me a good insight into the life of an automotive journalist. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we record it every week. So check out our Facebook page, Car Talk with Manager. That's T U R Q U E. Give it a like, give it a share. Uh, we have the link to our Shout Engine page on there, which uh, which is where we house our podcast. Um, if you prefer to listen to your podcast on iTunes, we're on there too. So subscribe, rate, and review so we can reach a further audience. Uh, we're also on a whole bunch of other podcasting sites. So you know, wherever you like to see your podcast, we should be on there. Stay tuned to our Facebook page as we always have different announcements, uh, as well as our new website in the works, which will be going live very soon. If you have any questions or want to, or want to feature on our podcast, send me a message through our Facebook page and I'll get back to you. Until then, this has been Car Talk with Manny J. Take it easy.